it's very useful for the powers that be to keep people separated, to keep certain parts of society invisible from other parts. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. And here's a way to help. No one anywhere would say these are the best of times. Well, unless one is joyful at seeing a new Gilded Age to heck with everybody who's not super rich, and who needs democracy anyway? <laughs> there, there are such people, of course. And one can imagine their selfish, perhaps even a bit sadistic glee these days. But as songwriter Bruce Coburn said a while ago, nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. Surrendering to injustice is just not an option, at least for a lot of us. Well, there's a new book, a novel simply titled Standing Up, Tales of Struggle, which is described by Ai Jen Poo, director of the National Domestic Workers Association, as great storytelling about standing up to injustice, filled with hope, powered by love and interdependence. Boy, those are nice words to hear. I don't know about you, but encouraging stories are indeed welcome in these historically difficult times. In standing up, Tales of Struggle, authors Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller have taken inspiration from the five decades organizing for labor and social justice to craft a novel about people who, for example, clean bloody hospital sheets, forge parts for sewer pipes, arrange flights or process checks, all while caring for children, trying to hold relationships together, and wrestling with multiple forms of oppression. There's also the COVID stuff, too, layered on top of that. It, this, this novel is about people we see every day, but maybe we don't really hear them. Their names, their joys, their sorrows remain unknown to us. And that's kind of convenient in a lot of ways. Well, this novel highlights the moments when people realize that oppression is neither normal nor inevitable, that change is possible, and that we can be part of that change. We, you and I, we can be part of that change. Thanks for being with us. We have the uh, two authors together here. Ellen Bravo worked at 9 to 5, the National Association of Working Women, for over 20 years, including 11 as its director. In late 2003, she founded the Family Values at Work Network, which helped win paid leave and paid sick day policies around the country. Boy, there's still more work to do on that. She's the author of three nonfiction books, including Taking on the Big Boys, or Why Feminism is Good for Families, Business, and the Nation, and The 9 to 5 Guide to Combating Sexual Harassment. Her first novel, again and again, about date rape and politics, was published in 2015, a recipient of the both the Ms. Foundation Legacy Award and the Ford Foundation Visionary Award, not too shabby. Bravo has uh, provided uh, testimony before House and Senate committees and has been interviewed by numerous media outlets. And thank you for being with us, Ellen. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Larry Miller is a former union member and shop steward with two decades of experience in jobs ranging from a hospital laundry to steel mills and medical equipment manufacturing. A layoff sent him to college, 
followed by almost two decades in schools as a teacher and then administrator. He served for 12 years on the school board of the Milwaukee Public Schools. Boy, that must be an interesting place now, including two terms as its president. As a board member, he was frequently uh, interviewed by local television, radio, and print media. Miller is an editor of Rethinking Schools. Larry Miller, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much. Well, one can't help but be reminded, maybe it's just me, of the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. These are certainly those. Some of us who are old enough to remember when there was a large and robust middle class in America. I can't help but think that when unions were strong and pervasive, more people knew to treat each other, even people they didn't know, with respect. Imagine. You describe the book as being about the deliberately unheard. Interesting. What, what do you mean by that? You know, that's a term from a wonderful author named Mbolo Mbue. She wrote a book called How Beautiful We Were. And she, I think, uses a much more dis, uh, correct, appropriate description for the masses of people. We sometimes hear politicians describe them as the voiceless. <clears throat> Everyone has a voice. The problem is they don't all have a microphone. And we know that those who control the mainstream media deliberately exclude the voices of the people who are harmed by their policies. Yes. Because if they heard each other and realized how many of them there were and who they should be angry at, the divisiveness that the people in charge try to foist on us would be much less effective. Yeah, if we see people as real people, it's more yes. difficult to not be nice to them and not respect them. And it works yeah. very well. And I've been doing this show for quite some time, and I interview a lot of authors on Keeping Democracy Alive, almost exclusively nonfiction. What, what factors led you to choose a fictional structure for reaching your target audience? Well, one of the things was that I had, I had written some essays uh, describing some of the work that I had done in the South. And uh, it really wasn't a genre for presenting those. So I went to Ellen and suggested that uh, we turn them into, is there a way to turn them into fiction, maybe short stories? Um, and she said, uh, what a great idea. I have a number of stories that I'd like to project based on the work that we've done over the years. Uh, so it's it's a way for us to uh, really uh, uh, put in uh, condensed form the things that we wanted to highlight over the years to uh, also um, bring together different characters into one person. Uh, most of the people in the book are real people, they, you know, as they're named, but um, there are some people that are, you know, a combination of different different folks. Vanessa, who's a, a critical person through most of the book, uh, is one of those. And I can imagine, I, I think people, oftentimes, as a recovering politician myself, I can <laughs> ad, ad, ad recognize that stories, personal stories, connect more. They, they, they just, you know, people can, can get it. It's a it's a tool that that works, and you always have want to have the best tool for the job. And racism, you know, is it's amazing to me how many people still deny systemic racism. It's more deeply ingrained in our culture than nearly 
that nearly all of us can understand. A black friend of mine startled me when he explained that most racists don't even know they are racist. I had to sit with that for a I still am like, what? In your book, you tell of white organizers committed to social justice and at times deal with it rather clumsily. In fact, I, I got sort of a personal story, too. I recall an incident in 1967 when my older brother was working in Buffalo, New York with Vista, a great program, and a white speaker from the podium referred to you people. <laughs> that, yeah. did, that did not go over well. In the early, <laughs> in the early days of SNCC's uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Stokely Carmichael rejected help from white sympathizers leading to the black power movement. And the two things that personally I most despise in this world are fascism and racism. And I, I appear to be white, though I'm actually Jewish, and there, to some people there's a difference. What can the stories in your book tell us white folks about this clumsiness and perhaps better ways we can take on racism? Well, I hope some of the examples are gentle ways of people saying, oh, got it. That's something I needed to hear. That's something I needed to do. So, for example, there's some scenes in the early Nick stories organizing in the South where, you know, a black co-worker doesn't have anything to say to him. And a friend who's really a, a skilled organizer and mentor to Nick tells him, hey, don't take it personally. The only white people this guy knows are the ones who jail his kid and turn off his lights. And that was a really helpful thing for him to see. And then the proof is in the pudding when the co-workers see him stand with the all black other workers and do the right thing. That's the thing that changes their mind. And likewise, there's a scene in this chapter called The Stand Up where workers at a call center, an airline call center, mm. actually the union makes us strong is the name of the chapter. And um, that there's a they've hired the company when they hired blacks created a lower paid tier oh and that's what they hired them in but of course whites who got hired at that time also got the lower pay and so when the blacks are trying to insist that equality in pay be one of the demands of their union drive and the white worker says well wait a minute aren't the white workers going to benefit too and he says bingo maybe that's the point that racism hurts everybody so there are great scenes like this, which we hope make that point without being preachy or uh -huh. didactic and show us that, you know, the, the, when we stand together, we do it because not out of sympathy or out of um, even just solidarity, but an understanding that anything that strengthens, let me put it this way that what racism does in harming blacks or other people of color strengthens the forces that are also oppressing white people. Ah. And when we understand that, that shared interest, then we can say, okay, we need to do this together, but we can't earn the trust to do it together unless we understand that there's greater harm, specifically based on race, that we need to speak out against as well. Boy, there, there seems to be a real lack of knowledge of that. That uh, sounds like a, a very important point that 
you know, it doesn't just hurt those people. It hurts us, too. We're all, you know, subject to it. Uh, the, the people who, who run this, this show, you know, the big show, uh, they make out great. You know, just having everybody oppressed and accepting it works really well for them if they're greedy and not very nice people. But <laughs> there is there is a bunch of that. And how convenient, how convenient for the gazillionaires yeah. who are making out like bandits. Yeah. If folks are mad at fill in the blank, the immigrants, the gays, the blacks, the yes. Jews, instead of saying, wait a minute, who's in charge here? Um, who's responsible for this? Who's benefiting from this? Yes. Not, it's certainly not the immigrants, the gays, the blacks, or the Jews. Uh, for sure. And there's also sexism, you know, a little bit these days. I And it's gone on for a long time. What, what you were just describing has been around for, oh, well over 100 years. What I, sus I suspect all listeners feel discouraged by the continuous power of, of the Trumpists. The racism, the sexism is remarkably, mark it's really transparent. They don't even try to hide it. Incredible, horrible violence has resulted. I believe that history moves in many directions simultaneously. It was nice back in elementary school when I thought, oh, yeah, there's progress. It just always gets better. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, political and cultural change requires movements to achieve any success, not just politics. There's politics and protest. You can't have real political change without actual movements on the ground, in my opinion. What does this moment with its conflicting pressure from right and left offer us in terms of options and opportunities? Kind of a big question. Well, I think that it's, it's critical. And what we try to show in the book is under whatever the conditions are, and uh, at every point in history, in, the, in, in our 50-year history, uh, the pressure has been uh, from many sides. And the issue is, how do you move forward? How do you mm -hmm. uh, dissect uh, the different political uh, and economic pressures that are, that are uh, coming on you and coming on the people as a whole, the working class, the poor, and make that analysis and move hope move forward what we're trying to one of the things we're trying to show in the book is that this is not you know you get involved for a short time and um you may have some setback or you may make some progress but the struggle's not over it has to it has to continue and and hopefully uh this will help contribute to that set that sentiment at one of our at one of our um readings a parent said that her children, uh, her sons had been involved in Black Lives Matter and become disillusioned. And mm. and I said, uh, to me, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, gave me new hope. And even though it's it's at an ebb right now, uh, it will it will continue. It 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 will move forward. And the thing that 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 we you know will also want to say to her and so many other people is there are. Derek Chauvin would still be on the police force wreaking havoc and mm. not in jail mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for the Black Lives Matter movement. We might never have known the name of Mon Arbery. Um, it doesn't mean that police violence and brutality has stopped, right. but the Black Lives Matter movement has made enormous difference in raising consciousness, including about 
the amount of military militarism that's been injected into police policing and the lack of mental health um, support and how many people need that and so on. So the, and in many places, there's terrific involvement in increase in voting among blacks, even in places like Georgia, where voter suppression was so hideous and blatant. Yeah. Um, the, the groups, incredible groups inspired by and including Black Lives Matter activists said, you may make it harder, but we'll work harder and <clears throat> did a great job turning people out. Well, I, a couple of things there. I, you know, the, the, the police are assigned these jobs that uh, they're not necessarily uh, law enforcement problems they're psychological problems and when as as your book talks about clearly respecting people listening to people uh it, it, when people become visible you can actually see them you know maybe there's another way to deal with that the other thing i wanted to say is one of the things that frustrates the heck out of me is the impatience that americans have you know if it doesn't change right away it's like, oh, no, it didn't work. You know, back in 1968, people talked about revolution. Well, there wasn't, uh, it, it didn't happen right away. And I remember thinking at the time, yeah, the revolution is over. We won. It's just going to take 50 years. I, under, <laughs> I underestimated. I sincerely, I very much underestimated. It takes a long time. You got to be patient. History doesn't change overnight. And I think that's one of the points about this, these are real people that you're telling real stories about. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with authors Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller about their new book, Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. And of, of course, the powers that be very much insist that we believe we are powerless and we just accept that. And a lot of people have. It's been really frustrating. Surrender must not be an option, even though it does get frustrating. In fact, it's probably always frustrating, really. Oftentimes we gather in big crowds to protest, like when the leak of the Supreme Court opinion pointed to the end of reproductive freedom. Lots of rallies. Such rallies are important, for sure. But they're, they're not the only option. You know, people rally... They make noise, and then they go home. And did, what does it accomplish? Workers' actions are designed to confront those in, in power in some way. The stand-up at the call center that you recount didn't break any rules, and people continued their work for that 60-second period, but nothing you write would, have ever, would ever be the same again. Tell us about that small action, what impact it had, and what what may be replicable about that? The thing that was so inspiring, and there there really was such a stand up at a call center of an airline. It, it was in Chicago, and it was by a, a woman, a nine to five member, who told us the story. The, the what it does is it shows people a couple of things. One is something they couldn't do on their own they could do if they act together and standing up together reminds them that they have power. Management is completely floored and doesn't know what to do, yeah. even though they have no plan and no um, 
organizing, they know that everything is going to be changed. It inspires one of them to leave an abusive marriage. Ooh. They it so it changes you in your personal life as well. And I think the Amazon la- labor union yes. victory in Staten Island, um, and we're really excited that some one of the leaders of that is going to be in a conversation with us June eighth in New York City. Um, the what the what they did and what the workers at that call center do and the next story about them the union makes us strong is talking one by one, winning people over, helping people see, for example, a white worker who has believed the racist garbage, when she realizes she's wrong about the union, she realizes maybe she's wrong about other things as well, and she's more open to listening. They use creative tactics. They cut through the money that the management is spending on union busting and expose the lies, just like the the Amazon workers did. And, you know, I think there's no substitute for the building relationships, building trust, cross race, cross gender, cross, you know, jobs and neighborhoods that goes on in a place like that. And the thing about what you were saying about marching, Mm -hmm. marching can be a good tool. If you also see it as organizing, who did I bring to the march? What did they learn from that? Who else did we go back and broaden our network? What conversations are we having with people? It's not just a one-time action, obviously, Mm -hmm. that's going to make the change. It's building organization. And one of the things that Larry said that night to that woman talking about her sons is that, uh, you know, it's uneven. Some places will Mm -hmm. be stronger what organization emerges from um, some spontaneous protests and make a bigger difference in terms of policy. But all of it is about systems change. The fact that 50 years later, the right to reproductive freedom can be stolen from us shows us that the, yeah, the, the very thing that your show is called keeping democracy alive. We in so many ways are not yet a democracy. We're still ruled money talks until we get money out of politics and get a majority of people in charge looking like and living like we do, we won't have achieved our goals. Boy, it's a steep hill to climb, but we we can't surrender. And I, I do find it curious and worrisome. Obviously, democracy is under threat today like never before, but I don't even know if people care. I mean, a lot of the, the, the people who vote for the for the Trumpists obviously don't care at all. But it's 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 a heavy lift. It's uphill, but we have to keep on doing it, and it does work. And it's it doesn't it never changes overnight. But you're right. I think you know the 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 excitement of the organization, the unionization of the Amazon workers in Staten Island. That's that's a sign that, that this that's not just you know a separate uh, uh, incident. It's going on, and and unions are really important. And I think what you're talking about the word union, connecting with other people that were not separated, and the, the you know the powers that be want to keep us separated and powerless. Ah, there's so much to talk about. Standing up, as I noted earlier, is about people we see every day but are intentionally kept invisible, nameless. Throughout American history, justice has been unequal, like 
the more you look into it, the, the more shocking it is. Money is the blatant divide, prohibitive bails, uneven legal uh, representation, jail time for disorderly conduct, public drunkenness, and loitering, what the friends of one of your protagonists, Nick, calls crimes of the poor or homeless. Nick got a front row seat to the unequal justice meted out to people of color and the poor in the 1970s Atlanta. Is there greater awareness, do you think, and concern now in the uh, 2020s? Have these aspects of our legal system started to change? Have they changed significantly over the past 50 years? How is how can that be addressed, and how does your book uh, start to address that? Well, the only the only way these things are going to be addressed is by the demands by from the bottom up, yes. by the demands uh. of communities, workers, uh, the poor, and that's what this organizing is all about: is to is to uh, bring these ideas forward. Now, every time we have a step forward, there's a a yeah. pushback. Yeah. Uh, and that's always been the history, and that's what we one of the things that we try to show. But you have to, you know, in in the book as as we try to portray, um, with every step forward, uh, you have to uh, raise the raise your the the goals higher, uh, uh, you know, to keep moving to keep moving forward. And there are big and there are big setbacks. I mean, the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court looking like it's going to, uh, you know, rescind Roe versus Wade is a is a, a huge setback. But there are so many people in this country, so many uh, of all ages. But if you look at millennials that had no idea, they thought this was, you know, the law, of, the law that couldn't be rescinded. Right. And there's a huge growing consciousness. That's why these these demonstrations around Roe versus Wade are are so significant because it's educating huge uh, huge numbers of young folks, uh, and women are taking the taking the lead in that. That's why all of this um, pushback against what people are are starting to see with with the government is is a good thing. We have to remember that uh, we got. Trump out of office. Now that 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 was a, a an advancement. That was yeah. a step forward. But, <laughs> but now look at what's you know now look at look at what's happening. You have a political party that's that is either apologetic or pushing uh, uh, replacement theory. You know a fundamentally white supremacist yes. theory. So it it means that we have to be on guard. Whatever movement we're in, whatever wherever we are. We have to be part of this effort to expose uh, expose lies. You know, you, we can't just tell the truth. We have to tell the truth yeah. and organize. I want to say one more thing about oh, your about yeah about the legal system. The one thing that's been exciting in recent years is the number of people who are really progressive who come from the movements and this uh, of, from grassroots organizing who are running for district attorney and really challenging this systemic use of incarceration as a new form of enslavement and naming that and looking at the pieces of it. So, for example, in the story where Nick goes to a prison farm and they meet black workers who are there, have been there for seven months just because they can't get a hearing and because they can't come up with money, you know, to get out um, as these young white 
anti-war folks they everybody knows are going to get out early mm. and um the fact that there's both more awareness of that but also some people making structural difference um jose garza in austin um chesa boudin in san francisco kramer in philadelphia there, there's a bunch of them and seeing that that those folks start to talk to each other and networks emerge likewise with some progressive politicians again people who come from the movement are organizing among their elected colleagues but relating it back to building grassroots movement those are those are the so encouraging developments even though as larry said the minute that happens giant pushback and trying to make bail reform the problem rather than the um brutal incarceration of so many people simply for the lack of funds. And of course, incarceration, mass incarceration serves the purpose of you don't see them. You never see them at all. They're behind these walls. You don't have to think about those people. Uh, And it's just incredibly brutal. And to organize among, you know, the people who are incarcerated, it's exceedingly difficult, I'm sure, because, I mean, heck, a lot of powers have, have, have uh, a stake in keeping it that way and keeping them invisible. But uh, I wonder what what can, you know, in, in keeping with the essence of, of your novel, Standing Up, I'm not in jail. You know, I don't know if I know people who are incarcerated. New Hampshire, where I live, is a largely white state. And uh, what what can is there action going on? Are there stories about people connecting and trying to make visible the intentionally invisible? Well, here in Wisconsin, for example, there's a lot of work being done. Uh, uh, organizations um, that are uh, includes the NAACP and coalition of others that are really uh, bringing this to light and pushing it into the. Uh, the elections that are <clears throat> coming up, the Senate race is, in Wisconsin is very significant. Uh, Ron Johnson, the infamous mm. Ron Johnson, <laughs> is running on on uh, uh, put them in jail. I mean, that's part of its slogan. It's I was just looking, I was just seeing an ad that he put out on TV yesterday. Um, uh, uh, jail the criminals, um, and so it's it's this. Debate and this struggle is coming to light, and there's a, a number of organizations on the ground mm. that are doing doing work around this, and I I think it's critical. It's part of the Black Lives Matter movement, but it also yes. goes goes uh, uh, beyond it. And I do know, you know, as a school teacher and a school board member, I know a lot of people that are uh, in prison, uh, family members of my students, uh, just a whole variety of people that have gone to, to prison. I mean, there, there are. Uh, it's legal to uh, smoke and sell marijuana in Colorado, but uh, you can go to jail in Wisconsin for the exact same thing that's legal in another state. It's it, it, the discrimination and and uh, uh, and what this means for black communities is the the data is just the incarcerate uh, rate for African Americans in Wisconsin compared to anyone else in this. Uh, black folks are a small minority of the population right. of Wisconsin. It's just outrageous. And when I was in the uh, New Hampshire Senate, uh, there uh, there was one state rep 
who we were talking about uh, prisons, and he said, well, they're all bad people, otherwise they wouldn't be there. <laughs> I could still hear him saying that. And, you know, it just, it's insanity. <laughs> Yes. So, you know, I feel I feel two ways about when you said there are a lot of people who seem to be apathetic about the attacks on democracy. I think there are a lot of people who feel disenfranchised and feel like what difference could they make? They don't have money. No one listens to them. That's one problem. So it's really important. Every you know, uh, there's some friends of ours helped edit a book called Power Concedes Nothing, Mm. summing up lessons, 23 essays about grassroots organizing around elections and why those two things need to be linked. And one of the things that they said is rather than talking about, quote, low propensity voters, they talk about low voters who haven't been reached, but who nobody's talking to Mm. and the importance of getting to their doors that Yes, the pandemic made it really hard and lots of people turned to digital organizing and there's value in that. But there's no substitute for the going to people's yes. doors and meeting them and listening to them and getting to know what they're where they're coming from. Part of the there are a lot of people who say stupid things because they've been fed stupid things and they, that's all they know. You know, I remember once <laughs> someone canvassing. For Obama and um, the person she met at the door, you know, had these string of lies about where he was born and mm-hmm. what his religion was. Mm-hmm. Not that, even though those things wouldn't have um, affected her view. And the woman at the in the house said, "You don't get the emails I get." And my friend realized, in fact, this woman's sole source of information were these right wing sites and news channels. And that was really frightening. So we have to figure out ways of breaking through that, at least to the folks. There are folks who voted for Trump because of his stand on immigration and his attacks on black people. But there are others who voted for him in spite of that because they wrongly believed that he cared about the little people. A lot of them have seen through that. But many. So there are slivers of people we can peel off. But more than that, there are a lot of people who haven't voted or voted regularly because they just feel ignored and um, that they've heard the message. You can't fight city hall. And we need to show them that you can, and we can win, especially if they're part of it. And stories can help. I do believe stories can help the the personal stories where people see that. Yeah, I really, it ain't easy, but it can make a difference. I'm getting the sense that Larry, you want to say something? Uh, no, I just uh, what Ellen is is uh, you know talking about in terms of a lot of people that are the deliberately unheard. I just yes. wanted to reinforce which what it you know what one of her messages is is about the deliberately unheard, and so uh, it, it, it's so critical. It's so critical. I mean, we do have to yeah. do an analysis of those folks that have been Trump supporters and and peel away. Uh, but if if the masses of deliberately unheard were actually uh, given voice and mm. and allowed to speak I don't, I don't mean given voice but uh, allowed to express their voices it would be it would be most significant in this country and and for those who may have just tuned in Bert Cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive we're talking with authors Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller about their new book standing up tales of struggle and my younger daughter was in uh, college in uh, South Central Pennsylvania, and 
that was real Trump country. And I, I puzzled as to why. And it, it finally occurred to me, I, my sense is, and it's just my sense, that people feel like I've worked hard all my life. I've played by the rules, and I'm not getting ahead. Trump hears me. Trump hears me. Nobody else is listening to me. And I really, it, it, I, I think this is a central point here. You know, you can talk issues and positions and policies all you want. But if people, as, as you're pointing out in your book, feel ignored, feel not listened to, they're going to be uh, not real happy about that and buy into uh, <laughs> the snake oil salesman that says, oh, yeah, I'll listen to you uh, and, and respect you. But Democrats can do that. Maybe I don't Democrats, but progressives uh, can do that. And it has, in fact, worked. It does work. And I think one of the things that uh, your book is showing is that, yeah, it, it does work. One, another traditional activity which has brought people together and brought real change is the strike. One of your characters, as we've mentioned, is Nick. Helping organized workers had been Nick's mission at Grinnell Steel. So they could, if needed, put a hurt on the economy if they went on strike. What are the obstacles to workers' rights to strike today? And the strikes have been really powerful over the years. What about that? Well, uh, one of the things is in the first story, which is is there actually is a work stoppage following a slowdown at Grady Hospital, which actually did happen in 1969. Um, uh, it in one uh, uh, everything that was demanded, um, it you can win first of all, but yes. uh, often often. Um, uh, after the the passing of Taft Hart, the half Taft Hartley right. uh, law in the late '80s, it puts a lot of restrictions on strikes. So there's certain industries that aren't allowed to strike, or the or the uh, president can implement uh, a restriction on strikes for when the air controller, uh, when uh, Reagan uh, oh. fired all the air uh, uh, controllers. controllers. Yeah. Yes, you know the plane controllers. Um, so there's all sorts of laws and restrictions, and uh, it goes down to states being right to work, uh, right oh, to work yes. uh, states where uh, you're not required to be in the union, uh, you don't have to pay union dues, all of these sorts of things. There are sorts of legal uh, obstacles to organizing. At the same time, we see that people are throwing that aside and casting that aside and saying, it doesn't matter. You can throw that at us. We're still going to use the ability to strike. And we saw, we're seeing that, you know, of course, with Amazon, we uh, have seen that with a number of uh, uh, Starbucks. Uh, there's yeah. a, a large co coffee um, chain here in the, uh, that's local uh, called Colectivo in Milwaukee. Um, 200, 200 uh, workers and they voted to form a union. Um, but I'll tell you what's, in the last few years, what's been one of the most exciting things was when the West Virginia teachers in a, in a right oh, to work yeah. state went on strike and they were they were supported and followed by the Oklahoma teachers that were are also uh, a right to work state in demanding more pay and more money for education. These are uh, you know, we go through cycles in, in this, um, but these are great examples of what 
of what people can do to use uh, the right of work stoppage to uh, get their demands. And sometimes it's necessary. Oh, absolutely. And and I, I've noted uh, in history that oftentimes uh, it's adversity that is the best organizer. I mean, the best organizer of the anti-war movement was, of course, Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, he was very helpful. <laughs> you didn't necessarily mean to. Now, books on activism don't usually get into too much of, of personal stories. Yet you decided to include a lot about Nick and Sophie's evolving relationship, as well as moments from their subsequent family life. Why did you decide to do this? How does that serve your, your storytelling? Well, love and relationships among the workers is 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 important. Uh, uh, if you look at uh, the uh, chapter from Grinnell Steele called "Down Yonder Again the Wall," uh, there's a couple that uh, were met by Nick, Elsie, uh, and his wife uh, Irma Jean. It's a, a love story of the ages, mm. uh, and it's to me, it's it's just really important to to show how the working class, you know, it's, it, people are depicted, poor and working class people are depicted as just, you know, just uh, being monsters and, and uh, awful folks. What I find found was just the opposite. Even who, some of the people that I consider looked like some of the roughest people I'd ever seen turned out to be just, you know, incredible friends. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, I, I had, they had my trust and, and, uh, I had their trust. And so, uh, what, what, uh, Ellen and I wanted to do is portray that you can have, you can have family and however that family comes, you know, single parents, uh, uh gay parents, however, those, However, that family is constructed, you could have beautiful family and still be part of this movement for change. And in fact, uh, it, it that has to be a, a, a part of it, a component of it, because people are people want good relationships. They want love. They want trust. They want all of those things. It must have been an interesting process in, in writing this book. Tell us about that. How long did it take you? And uh, just uh, very different. Tell us about the, the, the process of uh, creating this. We had a great time doing it. You know, it was a pandemic project. Um, <laughs> uh, there are a lot of couples. Who I heard her talking. Spend, I'm sorry. <laughs> if I have to spend one more second with that person, I'll still out of my mind. But we had just the opposite because we, we did this and it was such a labor of love. Um, it, it really helped. And a lot of it was, uh, you know, Larry had written these essays. We took them and I, I asked him, tons of questions about tell me the, how that person sounded tell me what the factory smelled like tell me what the floor looked like and um and he would go in great length and then i'd write it into fiction and then we i'd read it out loud and then he'd say back the changes and, and then i'd write some of my excerpts and give them to him to read and he again read them out loud and he'd um, say the parts he loved and make edits so it was a really, you know, collaborative thing in that way. Mm. And one of the things that was great when I mean, you asked about, you know, why did we talk so much about family life? Because it's so important uh, to us as well. And so our kids were the inspiration for yeah. Nick and Sophie's kids. We turned one of our two sons into a girl and he was happy to do that. And then the two kids that are um, the children of Emma in the union makes us strong. And one of them goes on to be 
in a relationship with a woman named Dory in another set of stories. So that was really fun, reliving memories of our kids and getting their reactions to our stories, um, because that's so much who we are. That's so much a part of our lives. You know, yeah. somebody, I remember years ago, someone said, um, oh, you were on vacation? I said, of course I take vacation. I play a lot. We spend a lot of time with family and friends, playing games, working out. And the reason we can do that and do do that is that we always have known that the only successful movement is one where the people who see you as an organizer have to say, I could do that. If we burn ourselves out, we're no good for anybody. But also the movement will never succeed if it relies on a few people working like wild folks. Burnout, yeah, this is a big problem. Family, support, fun, yeah, it's important. And if people burn out, part of it is that they don't see everything about each other and, and you know, they're not real, full people. Interesting stuff. And some of the divides in this country, I personally think that President Reagan was one of the most harmful presidents we have ever had. There are others too. But he really got the ball rolling when it comes to attitudes toward people at the lower ends of the income scales. Well, they're not us, you know, the, the welfare queens and all that. that. That was very powerful, I think. And, and I wonder how prevalent that sentiment seems today. Is, is there notable change in that? I mean, that's, that was very effective at separating people and keeping people invisible. He did lay some huge uh, groundwork for that that sort of thing to go on and just that you know just the racist depiction and i think you can see among millennials where there's debate around that sort of thing but you can also see that that uh it's been successful through the what trump was able to do was open the door to being as rabid as as anyone would want to be immigrants just the, you know when he came down the staircase and and then gave a speech that uh, immigrants were coming uh, raping uh, american women he opened the door for that and it's you know it's allowed people like uh, tucker carlson and and uh, you know fox news network to just say the most outrageous things and do their daily reports at the border and try to describe these people as bringing disease into the country and smelling and i mean it's just it it, it could not be more outrageous. And we have to fight against that at every point. And that's one of the things that we try to do in the book is to show the beauty of these workers and the beauty of the poor. It's an incredible injustice, the, you know, the way this is being described. This effort to keep people divided, how convenient. Yes. If someone is mad at immigrants, maybe they won't look at how much money their own uh. employers making off of them and and then charging so that they can't even afford to buy the product that they make. Yeah. And I, it isn't that hard to move people away if you have and take the time to listen to them and have a conversation. For example, I have had so many conversations where all I said about immigration, I started with this. Why would someone leave everyone they love right. Right. and everything they know and be unable to care for their own loved ones to come and take care of ours unless they couldn't survive otherwise? Right. And people say, well, I never thought about why do people mm, leave? Really? You know? Yeah. And then talk about <laughs> what multinational corporations have done in the countries where people are fleeing and how they have 
taken away, polluted their rivers, ruined their land, made it impossible for them to feed themselves in the way that they had, and then also fomented violence that made day-to-day survival really and supported and supported dictators. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's there's been so much of that, and to have, you know, it seems like this phrase "American exceptionalism." We don't have to think about what you know our lifestyle is doing to people in other countries. They're the other people. We don't have to see them. And it sounds like what you're talking about in this book is, yeah, we do have to see them. They're real yeah. people. They're people just like us. We, we have, This is an important uh, factor, I think, in, in helping to make uh, political and, and social change. For those who have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, authors Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller about their new book, Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. De- decades before Me Too put sexual harassment largely of high-profile, affluent like white women on the front page. Women of color and poor women like Soledad in your book were enduring such treatment almost as a condition of employment. How has that sort of situation changed since Me Too began? Are we as a society more attentive now to issues confronting women and families? And I have to think, again, that's personal stories and connecting with people, people we know. Oh, yeah, that happened to me. Right, exactly. So one of the things that we're you know, we should note when this book starts in the early 70s, there wasn't even the term sexual harassment. There was a law that could be applied, but was not. Um, gender discrimination wasn't thought to include sexual misconduct. And people didn't know that they had rights and they didn't know what to do, where, where to go. That's changed dramatically. Groups like 9 to 5. Yes. Um, people like Anita Hill make, making visible these kinds of stories has made a huge difference. And then there was the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement. And we've seen some big names go down, and that's great. On the other hand, if you're a low-wage worker, you still may very well have a boss who says, who are they going to believe? You're a nobody going against a somebody. Mm-hmm. And you have no money and if you have no papers, you're in a very vulnerable situation like Soledad. Um, and we have two members of the Supreme Court of the United States of America who are sexual harassers or sexual predators. And we had a president until a minute ago who was also a sexual predator. So we had a lot of work to do. There's a lot of systemic change yes. that still needs to be made. There are a lot of places, as I'm sure you know, where... People have no, they sign a thing, they don't even know they've done it, that says if there's a conflict at work, it will go to mandatory arbitration and the arbitrator will be a friend of the boss. Or they, they get some relief, but they have to sign a non-disclosure agreement that says the company admits no wrongdoing. We will not take any look at how much this is a pattern um, and you have to keep your mouth shut or you can lose your job. So there's the restrictions are enormous. The barriers still exist, and there's a lot of work that has to be done. Yeah, as uh, Bruce Coburn saying, nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. and takes a long time. And one thing about America as opposed to other Western countries, we're 
we're known to be a lot more religious oriented than other Western countries. The variation among religious leaders is really significant now. Uh, there, there's something, the Moral Mondays that put together uh, by Reverends uh, William Barber and Liz Theo Harris, and then there are right-wingers who pretty much worship Trump as some kind of gift from God. What about, what about the role of faith leaders <clears throat> in connecting people? Has, has that changed? Do you see stuff that you're talking about happening with faith leaders? Well, one of the things is the, the divide is very significant. Um, uh, read recent articles about how evangelicals uh, are being told on the pulpit every every Sunday that that Trump is is a was delivered by God yeah. to yeah, yeah. to transform. So it's just incredible that 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 they could even approach that issue, but it's also uh, causing a split among evangelicals. And there's there's uh, a movement among uh, Presbyterians, a movement among uh, Catholics that really uh, do look at this in a, in a more, in a more just way. And, and uh, those, those things are, that split is very, is very significant. So I, I wonder- Reverend Barber, yeah, you, you mentioned Reverend Barber, and I'm sure you know that there's going to be this you know very significant March in June. There's a lot of social justice, faith leaders. There's a group called faith in action and several other networks like that who've been tremendous in linking forms of oppression and helping people see that we have to fight racism and economic injustice and transphobia and sexism and so on, that they really have, um, uh, just as Martin Luther King tried to do back in the 60s, and was probably one of the reasons he was assassinated is that he began to speak out against the war in Vietnam and, and, and go to the strike of sanitation workers as part of his fight against racism. Yes, I, I, I think so. I think I, I'm convinced that's why he had to be killed. Many of us fail to see our potential power. We, we think we're powerless. We look to others to stand up for us. How, what can we do to shift the expectation in ourselves and encourage it of others? Well, I think that it, it's it, combined, we need to take advantage of every means to tell stories, to uh-huh. talk about the truth, to share, to share what uh, 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 what people need to hear. And it, you know the the uh, social networking uh, has caused huge huge problems. We have to take advantage of of uh, social networking in any way we can. I saw that uh, on TikTok that uh, when uh, Trump tried to fill the auditorium in in Tulsa um, back when he was president that the uh, young women on TikTok did this organizing drive uh, to use up all the tickets nah. <laughs> uh, so that only uh, instead of 20,000 people there were like 2,800 people sitting in the audience I mean we have to come up with creative tactics yes. we have to be, be very strong and forceful and we have to do whatever it takes uh, to oppose this, this, the right wing and, and uh, their politics. And, and I really believe there's a lot more of us than them. We just have to not accept our powerlessness. Uh, there's, there's so much work to do. How do you know, and, and, and sometimes I know, you know, when, you, when you're being in, the, in a legislature, uh, you know, you push 
And then, you know, you can't push forever. You got to compromise every now and then. How do you know? <laughs> how do you know when to compromise and when to keep pushing? That's kind of a difficult thing. But I, I think it's, as we're talking about, it's it's more just about really connecting with people. And, it, and as they say, in union there is strength. Yeah, and one of the, in in the story, listen to the children where we described the real. Um, organizing that kids did to win family leave in Wisconsin. And um, there's uh, uh, inspiring other examples of students um, becoming activists and taking, God. you know, making change. That the question of compromise that they talk about, the, the women in the Working Women United group, when they're analyzing afterwards their campaign, the, the things that they did well and the challenges they faced, and they ask this question. What they say is the key question is, will the movement stay together? Is And is this the most uh-huh. that our, we have power for right now? If we have power to do more, then let's keep going. Even if we give up something that looks like a little step, especially if it's a step in the wrong direction, mm. then we'll then we'll keep going. If, on the other hand, we just don't, we have to recognize we don't have the power to change this at this moment, but we we can get this much and we can use that to keep going and here's how we'll do it and we have a plan for it, then yeah, then, then, then that's a difference. And I remember this in Washington State. They were trying to win family and medical leave and all they could get was leave for parents of new children. And they, you know, they had a lot of groups who were working with the elderly or working with family care. Um, it's not just newborns yeah. who need care yeah. and, um, you know, kids need care at all ages of their lives. And it's not just children who need care, et cetera. So are their parents. And so they said, we will stay together and we will build on this. And they did. And they won one of the first, um, you know, a really good paid family and medical leave programs that includes a higher wage replacement and more job protection. And, you know, that was a, a guideline for them. Keeping your eyes on the prize and making it happen. And one of the things that's frustrating to me is, you know, how Americans are, are, are demand instant gratification. It doesn't work that way. We have to respect and listen to other people. Fascinating stuff in this book. Uh, who's the publisher of it? Hardball Press, and you can go to hardballpress.org to get a copy of it, um, or ask your local independent bookstore, make sure they stock it and um, buy it there. And if you go to our website, ellenbrower.com, you can see um, events that are coming up, including a virtual event. So we won't be in New Hampshire, but we'd love to have people from New Hampshire join. Well, this Our is a virtual event on we, June 14th. We got listeners all over the country, especially out west, for this show. Thank you so much. Very encouraging. And uh, yeah, we, we need uh, boosting these days. Great to talk to you. The book is called uh, Standing Up Tales of Struggle. And our guests have been authors Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller. Thanks so much for being with us today and for the work that you do. Thank, thank, thank you, you for, uh, for having us.